this movie with my oldest stepson and we as a family were able to talk about the themes of justice and the response taking responsibility for your actions and utilizing your talents and the skills and gifts that God has given you and empowered you with, how you can use them for both good or ill, and what responsibilities you have to use those talents. Well, that was part of our discussion uh, this week on Baby Driver, a film in theaters right now, and uh, we're discussing that this week with Bruce Edward Walker, on our Upstream segment here on Radio Free Acton, and uh, this is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Welcome to Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Uh, as I said, Bruce Edward Walker is uh, back uh, in the house today talking about Baby Driver. He's going to be talking with Dan Huger and Carissa Rule of the Acton Institute here about that film. Uh, Upstream uh, has been uh, just a, a great segment so far, and we're excited to have it back again this week with uh, Bruce Edward Walker in the driver's seat there. Uh, but before we get to that, we've got a new segment that we're going to try uh, try out today, uh, an Acton Mailbag segment, something that we've been wanting to do for a while, uh, where we give folks an opportunity to just ask a question of uh, some of the uh, intellectual uh, leaders here at the Acton Institute, uh, some of our scholars and uh, some of our associated sort of affiliated scholars and research fellows. And we are going to kick that off this week with uh, some questions for our president and co-founder, Reverend Robert A. Sirico. We had uh, a great crop of interns here this summer uh, at the Acton Institute who helped us put on Acton University this year and, and did a lot of great uh, research and work for us uh, through the rest of the summer. And before they uh, all left to get ready for uh, their continuing education at their various schools and organizations, uh, we had them come into the studio and uh, give us a question for uh, the, the the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Just uh, ask them, what would you ask Father Robert if you had the chance to sit down with him? And uh, we are going to uh, present those questions to Father Robert today here on Radio Free Acton. Daniel Menjvar, our producer, uh, sat down with Reverend Sirico here in the studios and uh, gave him an opportunity to respond to our intern's questions. And going forward, hopefully you will have an opportunity to ask questions. We're going to make that happen uh, coming up here. But for now, let's uh, let's hear what uh, Father Robert had to say to uh, to answer our intern's questions uh, with Daniel Menjivar here on Radio Free Acton. Here today on Radio Free Acton, we have Father Sirico. Uh, president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Father, thank you so much for being here with us in the studio. Good to be here. Thanks. Uh, today, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, do the inaugural session of uh, Acton Mailbag. Uh, and uh, for the first episode, we have uh, some intern questions uh, that we uh, solicited. And uh, hopefully we have some uh, uh, a good little discussion here. The first question is from Ian Moppin. In five years, where do you see Acton and its work? Five years is a long time in this highly advancing technological moment in human history. So one of the first things I would look for is the way in which the Institute will employ all of these new inventions that are so difficult to even anticipate. Um, already the uh, Institute has a, an incredible library of material, so to speak, that is arguments and discussions and conferences and books and articles. And I think one of the great challenges is to disseminate that 
using the new technology. So uh, at the moment, we are in the midst of creating what we're calling in-house acting in a box, and that basically is a digital presentation of the core ideas of the Acton Institute presented in a way that is very accessible and um, interesting to a new generation of people interested in our kinds of ideas. So that'll use imagery and story and parables and graphics and all of the rest of it. And the question will become how to deliver that and how to distribute that through a platform that uh, is easily accessible to people around the world. So I think in many ways the Institute is going to utilize these new technologies to disseminate its ideas, the ideas that were at the foundation of the Institute, because those ideas are ever new because they're true. Go ahead, do the next question. Uh, and this one is also from Ian Maupin as well. How did you and Chris Marin decide to start the Acton Institute? In a way, the Institute began as a result of the friendship that uh, Chris and I struck up when he was at Johns Hopkins University and I was at the Catholic University of America. We commiserated about the state of misunderstanding of the economy, of moral questions. It became very clear, just given our personalities, both the similarities in our personalities, that is our uh, love of ideas and debate, but also the differences in our personalities. Chris is uh, very much the organizer, businessman, uh, understated uh, approach to all of life's questions, and I'm the big picture, big mouth uh, articulator of ideas who likes to kind of get into a rumble, I guess. It just comes from our different upbringing, uh, literally different parts of the United States, he in Washington State and me in New York. And that beautiful blend of personality, uh, but a common passion for ideas, resulted in organizing a conference that we actually had at Johns Hopkins University. It was called Who's Afraid of Freedom? Chris at that time was the head of his fraternity and got his fraternity brothers involved in organizing the conference and got some funding from the student uh, council there. Both, believe it or not, both the Republican and the Democratic student groups at Johns Hopkins University contributed to this because it was toward the end of the year and they needed to spend the money if they were going to ask for more money the next semester. It sounds like a government boondoggle, doesn't it? But um, uh, so we we did that and we had um, people who are still friends today. Uh, Jennifer Roback Morse spoke at that conference and I spoke at that conference. Howie Bacher, who at the time was at the Foundation for Economic Education, is now a professor uh, and uh, Doug Boudreau, uh, all, all of these uh, friends of ours. And we had this conference, and there must have been 100 or 150 young people on a Saturday. And by the way, we got them also to pay. I think it was $5 to come to it uh, and gave them lunch. And we just sat and had these lectures and questions and answers. I mean, it was a very simple format. But we've called that the Proto-Acton Institute because... That was when we were both still engaged in our studies, 
but promoting these kinds of ideas and the synthesis of markets and morality or freedom and virtue. And after that, we went our respective ways. I went into pastoral ministry. Chris went into business. And then probably a few years later, uh, I had the idea to begin this, had a commitment for some money for the first year, and uh, called Chris at his job. He was in Hawaii at the time and invited him to come and co-labor with me in putting together these ideas writ large. And that was the beginning. He came tentatively. He said, you know, I, I just have this job. It's a management entry position and uh, could set me up nicely for the future. But I'll come for a year because the ideas are, are interesting. And if it doesn't work out, I'll just go back to my job. So he didn't really resign. He took a leave of absence for one year. And then, the, as they say, the rest is history. That's fascinating. I, I never knew the proto-history of, of Acton, so that's that's awesome to get to know. The next question comes from Anthony. Was there a moment in Acton's founding that you knew it was going to be a long-lasting success, or did that realization take time to develop? I think it took time to develop. I remember when we were first beginning the work of the Institute, uh, I was in pastoral ministry, and I wondered if there was a, a part of the basement in the uh, center where I was working, kind of like a parish, and I thought, well, that desk that isn't being used could be the Acton Institute desk, and Chris could occupy that desk. And uh, Thankfully, uh, my superior at the time said, no, 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 I don't think that would work, uh, so uh, I wasn't allowed to do it. It ended up starting in... Chris's bedroom. It was a two-bedroom apartment that he got. One of the bedrooms was the Acton Institute, but that eventually took over his whole apartment. It moved him out of his bedroom. He ended up sleeping in the um, dining room. <laughs> he put just the box spring and mattress in the dining room, and uh, the living room was taken over, the, the whole thing. And as it began to grow in that first year in his apartment. And then I remember our taking um, a lease on some office space in downtown Grand Rapids, um, which is now a hotel. We moved out of there some years ago when we purchased our own building that we're doing this recording in. I was very nervous signing a three-year lease. We ended up staying in that building for the better part of 20 years, I think. It kind of, I, I realized uh, the first few months I would always ask Chris, so how much money do we have uh, in the bank? He said, well, we have uh, three weeks worth of money. Uh, and then it would four weeks worth of money. And, you know, we knew that if we didn't get any more support after four weeks, we'd have to close the thing down. But it just kind of kept growing and uh, just was a very steady growth. And really, a lot of that is due to his organizational genius, his management, his modesty. It, I have to say that if I had done this on my own, um, we wouldn't exist today. Was there a point where where you said, we did it, uh, we've made it? You know, there is a sense, uh, you know, in looking back 20, almost 28 years now, of satisfaction. But I at least, you'd have to ask Chris, but I at least never am satisfied. Uh, I never say we've done it because every time we turn around and we hear these specious arguments and we see new trends, 
uh, even among people you would have thought were natural allies, conservatives, uh, who are uh, many of whom tend toward government solutions in various ways, whether it's a form of distributism or what I think are unfair critiques of a market economy or the failure to understand the moral potential of a market economy. I mean, we, we know, and if you look at our uh, work that, that we've produced, we have critiques of the market. We understand that the market is dangerous. It's like a very sharp knife uh, that can be used as a scalpel to save a patient or it can destroy and cut things. So this is why we think the, the market needs to be constrained by morality, not by other original sinners. And when we see that that's not the case, even among people who would be our, our allies and friends uh, at times, or new trends, new fascination with socialism, or crisis points in the world, like Venezuela. And it's a place that I have visited several times, a beautiful country, beautiful people, but so downtrodden as a result of yet another socialist experiment. You wonder. I think the moment when I was most optimistic was right after the collapse of communism. I grew up with the accepted fact that the Soviet Union, that communism would dominate so much of the world, and that was just a given reality. And to see it collapse relatively nonviolently was an exciting moment, an optimistic moment. And I thought, well, now people know. We, we couldn't had arguments with people months before the fall of communism about whether communism was a viable system or, you know, all the rest of it. Uh, and then to see it evaporate as a legal institution, but then to see its resurgence, the idea of the socialist experiment. So no, I don't I don't ever feel really satisfied in that sense. <laughs> On Thursday, August 17th, the Acton Alumni Association is relaunching our Acton on Tap series at the New Holland Brewing Company in downtown Grand Rapids. Come join us for this free event featuring Jacqueline Isaacs of the American Studies Program. Jacqueline will talk about her new book, Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. Doors open at 6 p.m. and the lecture begins promptly at 6.30 p.m. You can register for the event at acton.org. The first 50 people who register will receive a free drink ticket on us. We look forward to seeing you on Thursday, August 17th for this Acton on Tap event with Jacqueline Isaacs. Welcome to Upstream, where culture is upstream from politics bullet the french connection to live and die in la directors like william friedkin the jason statham transporter series all of them have one thing in common and those are iconic car chases 
amazing scenes where you get to see muscle cars do what they do best. And in most of these, uh, also the Fast and the Furious, in most of these you get to see a little bit about what Detroit Muscle was more or less not intended to do, but does so anyway with uh, cinematic aplomb. Recently, Baby Driver entered movie theaters, and it's kind of turned the genre on its head by being a little bit more than just a chase movie, even though it does that spectacularly well. And we're going to be discussing that movie today with Acton Dan Huger and Carissa Rule. So, hello everybody. How are we doing this afternoon? Hi Bruce, doing well. Doing well. Terrific. Okay, well, I'm going to throw it over to you, Carissa. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your expectations for this Edgar Wright film was and um, how it met or even exceeded them you know this movie really was interesting i expected a general heist movie that doesn't have a whole lot of story but is really flashy fast-paced and what impressed me from the beginning of this movie was its unique flair as you had mentioned the choreography the music the technical aspects the layers of character development that i felt are not necessarily present in something like the fast and the furious just fast action-paced movie and it really is reminiscent to me of some of the older classic films, some of the other types of, you know, old Hollywood that brought together and married with the more of a traditional heist movie. So to me, I gave it, um, I thought it had some plot holes and some character development issues, but overall, I thought, you know, a solid 90% and would definitely see it again. It's a lot of fun. It's definitely uh, two popcorn uh, movie. It's it's really very exciting. Absolutely. Dan Huger, care to weigh in? Yeah. No, I really enjoyed the film. I hadn't had a lot of experience with anything done by Edgar Wright before. Um, I had seen uh, Shaun of the Dead and, um, and Hot Fuzz, which were hilarious sort of standard buddy comedy genre spinoffs. And what's really interesting with this, I think Edgar Wright manages to do a very, very straightforward heist movie where he takes the genre very seriously, but then just adds layer upon layer upon layer with that, with the music, with the sight gags that he's so well known for in his other films. Those are incorporated not only um, with the dialogue and with the story, but adding that additional layer of music um, makes it even more compelling. It is nonstop thrill ride. Um, it is a it is a consistent adrenaline rush. Um, it's got that level of chase and action that you have in like a, a Fast Five, but there's more going on than in uh, than in Fast Five. Which you know, and I'm going to defend the Fast and the Furious movies because they're incredible. They're all about family, and they feature they feature a cavalcade of America's great leading men. Bruce, there's a lot of stars in this movie. There's a lot of people, both established stars and sort of up-and-comers. Who do you think had the best performances? Well, um, despite an uh, underwritten character, I think Kevin Spacey does just knocks it out of the park. I mean, basically, he just cobbles together a, uh, a half-written character and does a yeoman's job with it. He, it's like he reincarnates the, the characters that he portrays in House of Cards and that he portrayed in Glengarry Gladden Ross, where he's a pretty frightening dude. And uh, you can see how he can hold sway over the, uh, the character that is Baby. 
Uh, Jamie Foxx is also very, very frightening. He, he kind of plays off of uh, the character that he portrays in uh, the Horrible Bosses movies, but actually takes away the ridiculousness of his character and makes it extremely frightening. And uh, John Hamm, I think, is absolutely wonderful because he plays off the uh, the typecasting that uh, he created for himself in Mad Men. He plays a, a disgraced Wall Street bigwig, a, a suit, who uh, falls upon hard times and becomes a really nasty piece of work. I mean, when you meet him, you like him. He's, he's John Hamm. He's an extremely handsome, very charming uh, character. And then he just devolves into a machine that is pure evil. And then I think also you could talk about John Bernthal, who uh, his character is written in such a way that uh, it, it's almost a, a parody of his character in The Walking Dead. And uh, listeners will recall that in the first two seasons he played Shane in that, in that series. And uh, you ended up uh, despising his character by the time he, he finally bites the big one. There are a couple of, of, of redeeming characters in this as well. Um, one is baby's elderly roommate an elderly disabled african-american character who serves as his conscience yes who's constantly reminding baby that this is not the sort of thing that he's meant to do and trying to get him at various points to try to leave this life the other character baby's baby's love interest also sort of serves this function. What did you think of that character, Carissa? I thought that was really interesting throughout the movie how Baby has a look of innocence, how he has a search and desire in a certain way for an innocent love and a respectful life. So here he is involved in this, surrounded by these horrific characters in this terrible life of crime, and yet he has such love for his elderly caregiver, his roommate, and this woman that he meets, this waitress that he immediately falls in love with through their mutual love of music and how that kind of the purity of the song that they share together and their desire to just leave their crazy lives and drive away together with the excellent soundtrack. There's something there that's really, it captures the young spirit and the wistful imagination and the passions of youth in, I think, a really powerful way. Well, terrific. I mean, do you perceive any other, what we like to call here on Upstream, actin themes that uh, relate to the film? Uh, something that uh, we, we could take away that justifies sitting through an hour and a half of car crashes, gunplay, foul language, and other types of violence. Absolutely. And I watched this movie with my oldest stepson, and we as a family were able to talk about the themes of justice and the response, taking responsibility for your actions and utilizing your talents and the skills and gifts that God has given you and empowered you with, how you can use them for both good or ill, and what responsibilities you have to use those talents. Um, and again, the, the themes of justice and redemption, and the themes of mercy, and how characters can come together, you know, even after they've lived this horrible life, they can sometimes you know, find redemption in the end. Well, terrific. I think that's all we have time for today. I do appreciate speaking with you, Dan Huger and Carissa Rule. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. Talk to you next week.
Well, that uh, brings us to the end of another edition of Radio Free Acton. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, of course, to Reverend Robert A. Sirico, president and co-founder of the Acton Institute, for joining us uh, for our first mailbag segment. Uh, it's great to have him in the studio always, and uh, we appreciate his time. We know he's a very busy man. Thanks as well to uh, Dan Huger and Carissa Rule for joining Bruce Edward Walker uh, for a discussion of Baby Driver, a great film out there uh, right now that you can uh, still catch in theaters. Uh, and uh, thanks to uh, Daniel Menjivar for producing. Thanks to Bruce Edward Walker for his work on uh, the Upstream segment. And thanks, of course, to you for joining us here on Radio Free Actin. We hope that you uh, have subscribed. If you haven't done so, uh, you can subscribe on Google Play and on iTunes. And, uh, of course, share the, uh, share the podcast with folks that you think might be interested in the work of the Acton Institute uh, and, and who are interested in building uh, a moral society, a free and a virtuous society, and reinforcing those foundations of freedom. Uh, we uh, we want to make sure as many people as possible hear about the work and mission of the Acton Institute, and you're a big part of that. Thanks again for joining us this week on Radio Free Acton. We will talk to you again uh, on future editions. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you later. Bye, everybody. Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has been promoting a free and virtuous society for over 25 years. Working with religious leaders, educators, business leaders, and students from all over the world, Acton is the connection between religion and business based on sound economic and moral principles. To support the great work that the Acton Institute does around the world, visit give.acton.org today. Again, that's give.actonorg.